Hey everybody and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions, and also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And of course, by Policy Pack Software, we use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these great sponsors to thank. And now for some news. ZDNet this week highlighted that Microsoft has begun rolling out Windows Server 2022. It is available right now from the Volume Licensing Service Center, and I can confirm that I noticed it being available in the new Visual Studio subscriptions download page, which is now called Visual Studio Benefits. It used to be known more popularly or widely as MSDN. Windows Server 2022 comes in Standard Edition, Data Center, and Data Center Azure Edition. As reported on our previous episode of the podcast, Microsoft has changed the release cadence of upgrades going forward, and for Server 2022, that means it will be more like a long-term service channel with no semi-annual upgrades available or required. Server releases will get 10 years of support, comprised of 5 years of mainstream support and 5 years of extended support. ZDNet highlighted that Windows Server 2022 users will be able to apply advanced multi-layer protection against threats enabled easily with secured core server. They'll be able to secure connectivity to business critical assets with an additional layer of security during transport, including support for HTTPS and TLS 1.3, which are enabled by default. They'll be able to manage and govern Windows Server on-prem with Azure Arc get better virtual machine management with the latest Windows Admin Center, migrate file servers from on-premises to Azure with new supported scenarios in storage migration service, improve container application deployments with smaller image size for faster download and simplified network policy implementation. I'll be very interested to see that smaller image size because right now the image size is pretty ridiculous. And finally, also an update to .NET applications with the new containerization tool in Windows Admin Center. And I'm sure there's more I saw there. I haven't downloaded it and set it up yet. I'm excited to try it out for myself. And if you want to hear more about some of the features that are in this new operating system, a server summit event will be held by Microsoft on September 16th. This week was announced by Liquidware that their popular Flex App application layering solution now includes a new product called Flex App One, our new feature. This is an innovative feature that enables virtually any Windows application to be self-contained in a single file and easily distributed to any Windows workspace, plus can also run offline on laptops and physical endpoints like PCs. They say the new self-contained format of FlexApp One enables the industry's most flexible application delivery to be managed by mainstream application deployment solutions such as Microsoft Endpoint Manager, 
all while keeping base images clean and avoiding the usual degradation of Windows performance over time. The containerized nature of FlexApp One apps also enables them to be shared via cloud-based platforms such as Microsoft SharePoint, Amazon WorkDocs, OneDrive, Google Drive, Dropbox, and Box. FlexApp One is said to support offline use cases such as laptops or disconnected PCs, a long-standing community request of application layering products, especially in the wake of increased work from anywhere users. FlexApp One does not require a heavy agent or player to be pre-installed to run layered packages. Only a self-installing service is needed that runs silently in the background. One base requirement for offline, they say, is that target PCs and laptops should be well-managed, unencumbered from practices or users constantly installing and uninstalling apps traditionally, which can naturally degrade Windows performance over time. The new FlexApp One technology also works well with Azure Active Directory and supports the rapid deployment of apps to emerging new workspace platforms such as AVD, Windows 365 Cloud PC, Amazon Workspaces and AppStream 2, plus Nutanix, WeFrame. And of course, Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktops and VMware Horizon are also fully supported. So pretty interesting, uh, the idea of being able to layer your applications, where application layering typically has a much higher rate of compatibility than say, those older traditional application virtualization technologies, but one of the problems with application layering was it's not very portable, it's not very mobile, it's not very agile. Whereas now that they've containerized their layers, that gives the added benefit of, hey, you've got a very high rate of compatibility with this, but you've also got the agility and portability too. So very cool stuff. I'm looking forward to trying it out. Twitter was light over the last week after John Hatt shared a vulnerability discovered with Razor Mice. He showed that when you plug in a new mouse, it prompts to install the driver. The installer is running in the system context and is interactive. So during the installation wizard, you're able to click to browse from the installer into File Explorer, and you're able to change the install directory, or at least that's the intended purpose of being able to browse. But when in Explorer, you're able to launch an elevated PowerShell window running in that system context. So all you need to do in order to gain system context on a Windows machine is plug in one of their mice. Incredible stuff. John explained he was publicly disclosing this because he had contacted the vendor and they didn't respond. Bleepy Computer later tweeted that the vendor has since reached out to John and confirmed they will fix the bug and even though he disclosed it publicly, they will be paying a bug bounty to him. Speaking of vulnerabilities and a great way to protect against many of them, Jeremy at PolicyPack shared a draft of a new blog post that he created about the weeks-long print nightmare saga with some of his recommendations on how to deal with that scenario that I think could apply equally to countless other types of similar vulnerabilities that are likely to raise their ugly heads over the coming years. I mean, the Razor bug is pretty egregious in how simple it makes it to grab system privileges, but really, installers running in system context is actually not that completely alien. There's got to be very similar vulnerabilities with other installers that are running in system context and are able to run interactively. I'm sure of it. So 
having a solution to that and to the issues like the print nightmare and just basically having a solid foundation of security is very important and Jeremy's blog post gives you a way to build that solid foundation for security. The Windows 11 preview is now available in the Azure Virtual Desktop Image Gallery. The launch statement said, for Windows 11, Azure Virtual Desktop still provides exclusive support for multi-session, an important option that allows you to optimize costs by running multiple users on a single Azure Virtual Machine. They say you can now use the Trusted Launch, which is available in Preview, to enable TPM version 2 and Secure Boot as part of the VM configuration to take full advantage of the security capabilities in Windows 11. The user experience with Azure Virtual Desktop is intended to be identical to the local PC experience. Some higher-end graphics effects, such as transparencies, animations, and rounded corners, may require using Azure Virtual Desktop with an Azure VM with the right GPU support. Time to invest in NVIDIA and AMD, I guess. Um, you can visit the Azure Marketplace to choose from the Windows 11 images that includes Windows 11 Enterprise Preview, the Enterprise Multi-Session Preview, and also Enterprise Multi-Session with Microsoft 365 Apps Preview. And speaking of Azure Virtual Desktop Preview features, the Multimedia Redirection for Azure Virtual Desktop is now in preview. The Multimedia Redirection, or MMR as it's being called, which I believe is a vaccine I got as a child, <laughs> that gives you smooth video playback while watching videos in your Azure Virtual Desktop browser. Multimedia Redirection remotes the media element from the browser to your local machine for faster processing and rendering. And I found that that's pretty crucial, especially on those shared machines where you don't want one user being a noisy neighbor, hogging a lot of resources, watching or streaming some video in that shared session host. Now, both Microsoft Edge and Google Chrome will support the Multimedia Redirection feature. However, the public preview version of Multimedia Redirection for Azure Virtual Desktop has restricted playback on YouTube. To test YouTube within your organization's deployment, you'll need to also enable an extension, which they've included a link to within the announcement for this, and I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 191, and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode. The Record.media published an article about how Cloudflare reported that they handled a massive denial-of-service attack. Cloudflare said this attack peaked at 17.2 million HTTP requests per second. This is a figure that the company described as almost three times larger than any previous volumetric denial-of-service attack that was ever reported in the public domain. Cloudflare said that while the attack peaked at 17.2 million requests per second, the threat actor kept its botnet aimed against its customers for hours, during which time it had to absorb more than 330 million junk HTTP requests. Based on the infected device's IP addresses, Cloudflare said that 15% of the attacker's traffic came from Indonesia, while another 17% of the malicious traffic came from India and Brazil combined. During the attack, it had accounted for 68% of the legitimate HTTP traffic the company processed during the second quarter of 2021. <laughs> so I could see why it was such a record-breaking massive attack that they encountered. 
I believe it's still not the largest overall from any company that has observed this. I think Amazon still stands with the record for the largest denial of service attack. MS Endpoint MGR shared a new community edition of their tool called Cloud Laps. The product provides the functionality of rotating the password for a given local administrator account on trusted devices using proactive remediation in Microsoft Intune. A trusted device in this sense means a device that is managed by Intune and joined to the organization's Azure AD tenant. Apart from other community solutions similar to the solution, Cloud Labs provides access to retrieve the local admin passwords through a web-based portal. Delegated access to the web portal is supported through the means of a native Azure AD enterprise application management. Password retrieval through the web portal is automatically logged in Log Analytics workspace for auditing purposes. Cloud Labs Community Edition is based upon a set of services hosted in Azure. The service components that make up the solution consists of the Azure Function App, Azure Key Vault, Azure App Service Plan, Azure App Service, Azure Monitor, Azure Application Insights, and Storage Accounts. Apart from those that I just mentioned, proactive remediations of Endpoint Analytics in Microsoft Endpoint Manager is used on the client side being responsible for scheduling and executing the call towards the function app API that is running in Azure. So if you want to try it out, that's some of the components it's leveraging to do what it does, but it sounds like a pretty cool solution. A threat actor known as Shiny Hunters began selling a database this, this week that they claim contains AT&T customer data. They are trying to sell the contents on a hacking form with the starting price of $200,000 and incremental offers of $30,000. The hacker states that they are willing to sell it immediately for $1 million. A security researcher who wishes to remain anonymous told Bleeping Computer that two of the four people in the samples were confirmed to have accounts on AT&T.com or ATT.com. Other than these few details, not much is known about the database, how it was acquired, and whether it is authentic or not. For their part, AT&T says that they did not suffer a data breach. So this could be a story that develops in the coming weeks. And it's interesting timing considering T-Mobile just had a pretty large breach of their own, and AT&T and T-Mobile are two of the largest providers in the United States. So watch this space. China has passed a law designed to protect online user data privacy and will, and will implement the policy from November 1st. The law states that handling of personal information must have clear and reasonable purpose and should be limited to the minimum scope necessary to achieve the goals of handling data. Reuters reports that it also lays out conditions for which companies can collect personal data, including obtaining an individual's consent, as well as laying out guidelines for ensuring data protection when data is transferred outside the country. The law further calls for handlers of personal information to designate an individual in charge of personal information protection and for handlers to conduct periodic audits to ensure compliance with the law. So very interesting that China's kind of getting on board with some data privacy and com data compliance. I also saw this week that the United Kingdom is likely to scrap GDPR, which they had adopted as part of being in the European Union. But now due to Brexit, they're no longer in the European Union. So it sounds like they're going to do away with GDPR and possibly get their own data compliance in place.
I think I saw some of the reaction was, oh, great, we're not going to have any of those cookie warning pop-ups anymore that came along during the implementation or rollout of GDPR, which I don't think is true because when I lived in the U.S., even though I was outside of the EU, when you visit websites, it's kind of a catch-all. They just protect themselves by popping up the warning, which I think I follow a couple of data compliance regulation specialists on Twitter, and they say that those pop-ups are a complete misunderstanding of what GDPR is and are not actually required. But I still have one on my site because uh, I am not too sure. I haven't read up on the law. I'm not a legal expert and I just kind of want to protect myself. I have Google Analytics to look at the stats for who visits my site and technically I think I'm supposed to tell people that if they're going to my site that information is being collected. So. I don't know, I'm just being cautious, I guess. The UpGuard research team alleges that they have discovered multiple data leaks resulting from Microsoft Power Apps portals configured to allow public access, a new vector of data exposure. The types of data varied between portals, including personal information used for COVID-19 contact tracing, COVID-19 vaccination appointments, social security numbers for job applicants, employee IDs, and millions of names and email addresses. UpGuard say they notified 47 entities of exposures involving personal information, including governmental bodies like Indiana, Maryland, and New York City, and private companies like American Airlines, J.B. Hunt, and Microsoft for a total of 38 million records across all portals. They say that product documentation for Power Apps describes the conditions under which OData APIs can be made publicly accessible, and the main Power Apps marketing page lists the ability to access, quote, your data either anonymously or through commercial authentication, end quote, as one of the top features. In cases like registration pages for COVID-19 vaccinations, there are data types that should be public, like the locations of vaccination sites and available employment and available appointment sites, and then sensitive data that should be private, like the personally identifying information of the people being vaccinated. And from what I understand from reading this article, it appears that maybe the people leveraging the Power Apps and the OData APIs are not using the API correctly for all of the data, so some of the data is being publicly exposed that should really be private. And Microsoft responded to UpGuard's concerns about this, telling them that this was by design. So it really appears that using the feature in a less than secure way is viewed more as an issue with the people using the service than a bug with the actual product that should be patched. I wonder if there's gonna be some pressure coming onto Microsoft if this story blows up and then they'll reverse it and try to do something to reverse the security hole that has been created. This week, a bunch of the Microsoft Sys internal tools got some updates, including Process Monitor version 3.84 has been released. They received a series of UI improvements related to the dark theme and general Windows 10 tweaks. Process Explorer also got some love with fixing a memory leak in the Handle Properties dialog, including a new label for Medium Plus for process integrity levels and some display tweaks for systems with large memory capacity. And also RDC Man, which has just made its return, has been updated to version 2.83. 
And this update adds support for the remote desktop client from Windows 8.1 and forward and supports resizable sessions via automatic reconnect. The VMware App Volumes 4 version 2103 has been released and includes bug fixes and known and includes bug fixes for known issues including one where there was Windows 10 start menu weirdness. So if you experience that, make sure you upgrade to this update. In a not very enterprise IT story this week, but that I found cool, is that Microsoft and HP took part in an experiment using machines on the International Space Station to demonstrate the value of processing data in orbit and funneling it into the cloud. Four experiments were carried out and focused on quantum computing, security, healthcare, and life sciences, and were conducted with the assistance of the Spaceborne Computer 2, which has been on the space station since February. Another 29 experiments are in the pipeline, but more could be added during the Spaceborne Computer 2 experiment, which is scheduled to run for two or three years. HPE is eager to prove that conventional supercomputers with open source software can serve a variety of space-related customers, including principal investigators conducting space station research. It should allow the space agencies to get over obstacles like low computer power and bandwidth issues, plus more that they had experienced when trying to use computers on the space station in the past. It has been announced this week that the Office app used by Chrome OS users will be removed from the Google Play Store on September 18th. Users are encouraged to instead use the, quote, optimized experience, end quote, via the Office 365 portal, which clearly the web app experience with Office 365 is not really optimized and is inferior to the app. Engadget also warns that those using the app today should be prepared for little to no access to their Office products while offline in the future. So that really sucks. I don't know, are they waving the white flag and just giving up to the uh, G Suite of products? But this somewhat goes against what the ethos of Microsoft has been since Satya Nadella became CEO. So not great to see. And maybe they'll reverse course or um, release some other more native experience office in the future. Citrix this week announced a new Citrix Analytics for Splunk app that brings some of the analytics dashboards into the Splunk app in a mobile-friendly format. And finally this week, another fantastic performance analysis was carried out and shared by the GoEUC team this week. They did some testing of FSLogic's profile containers stored on Azure Files Standard, Azure Files Premium, and NetApp files for Azure Premium with really interesting results. I honestly thought that there would be a larger gap between the two premium offerings, but there is a qualifier thrown at the end to maybe explain why they came in somewhat close to each other in the results. So make sure to read it for yourself to find out why. You'll probably come away with the same thought as I did when looking at the overall data, you know, looking at that cost of each of the products versus the difference between the performance and output. Anyway, you should definitely check it out for yourself. If you want to start a Twitter discussion about it, I'm game because I thought the results were really interesting. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. 
Joanna Sick was a guest on the V Brown Bag podcast, and it was a really awesome interview. So this year, if you're not following him on Twitter, which you really should because he's a great follow, he decided to sell his house in California. He was living in Silicon Valley and moved to Wyoming and took up ranching. He goes into the details of you know, deciding where to go, like he considered Texas, he looked at Montana, and then he ended up finding a place in Wyoming, and it was too expensive for him, and it's really interesting. He goes through how he was able to work out a deal to afford it, and a lot more information. And a lot of IT workers who grind all day in like modern technology, kind of like the idea of going back to a simpler life, but not many of us do it. And Joe actually did it. So it's really interesting to hear about his journey and his story. And if it sounds like something that you daydream of, <laughs> I think you'll want to catch this interview. My buddy Trent Tai had a really cool video published this week of him walking around his house, showing how he measures his Wi-Fi signal strength and some of the other critical network metrics as he's moving around from place to place. He also even shows it updating as like he goes outside and walks down the street. So it's a really, really cool video and it shows just some of the power of being able to observe that data in real time. This week, Microsoft announced AP Computer Science Principles with Microsoft Make Code, which is a curriculum that is free and uses web-based technology and tools that could be accessed across platforms and devices. The curriculum is said to be endorsed and approved by the College Board as aligning with the AP Computer Sciences Principles Curriculum Framework and AP Computer Science Principles Exam. Some additional features of the MakeCode curriculum includes game-based learning for increased student engagement using the MakeCode Arcade platform, visual block-based programming environment with JavaScript and Python options for more advanced students, focus on design thinking process for student projects, educator professional development available plus more so if you're mentoring kids or you have your own kids and you'd like to teach them the basics of programming maybe you've used and you're familiar with scratch which is quite popular for teaching kids programming well this looks like it could be a really good alternative to that too so definitely worth checking out this week i saw that james rankin blogged about an issue he encountered with fs logics profiles corrupting on second and subsequent login attempts with an FSLogix user's registry hive was missing error at logon. So if that's an error that you've encountered, check out James's blog post for uh, how to handle that. Securityintelligence.com posted a really cool blog post on hunting for evidence of DLL sideloading with PowerShell and Sysmon. So obviously PowerShell and Sysmon are very accessible and familiar to us IT pros. So if you want to see how to use those tools you're already familiar with for hunting evidence of something that could cause a security concern, this is a really great tutorial to follow. And finally, the awesome Remco shared a really handy PowerShell script for installing XML tools for Notepad++. So there's all these kinds of extensions available for Notepad++. I really like the extension that allows you to compare two text files to see what's different. So being able to take a script like this and maybe modify it and get it to automatically install these useful extensions is pretty cool. And Remco has a script that you can take for that. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.